Rich started us off in this series on the book of Romans last week, and he kind of divvied up the book of Romans in four quadrants. If you look at this, you see how he was talking about uh, the book. The first three chapters, he says, what a mess. Sin is worse than you realize. The next uh, few chapters, what a gift. Grace is bigger than your struggles. Uh, then 8 through 11 is really what a God love is stronger than your circumstances. And then the final few chapters, what a difference. Peace is closer. Uh, that should be than you think, not thank you think. Um, little, little typo there. Sorry about that. In, in a conversation, Rich and I were talking about this, this simple outline of Romans. And uh, he said the first three chapters really kind of spell out like this. He, he said the first chapter is, you know, sin is bad. And then chapter two is, you know, sin is really bad. And chapter three is, sin is really, really bad. So all of which is to say, just, I want to encourage you to take a deep breath and hang in there. That the, the last week and this week and next week are, are kind of tough pills to swallow. But I think sometimes we need to hear hard words in order to make a change in life. And, and I believe that you and I are here today because it's our fervent desire as we pray to be the people that God created us to be and really to be better at following Jesus today than I was yesterday. Now that said, Paul really ends the first chapter of the letter to the church in Rome by talking about people who are not Jewish, who are Gentiles, and the life that they live. And I want you to remember what Paul said at the end of chapter 1. So, so take a look at this and uh, listen to this. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I know you all have never ever done anything that ought not to have been done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, ouch, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Boy, is that a warm fuzzy or what? Now, don't anybody respond to this, but, but take a look at that. There are 17 sins that Paul spells out there. Just, just look through those. Don't raise your hand on this. Do you see yourself up there somewhere? I know I do. And it kind of hurts. Quit counting. See a guy out there going. Now, remember, there are two broad groups of people that, that Paul is dealing with in the church of Rome. There are the Jews, the people who see themselves as the covenant people of God, the chosen people. The Jews in this context who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And there are people who were not raised as Jews and are beginning to understand that Jesus is the hope of all humanity. Now, as Paul drops that bombshell at the end of chapter 1, as he's laying it on the Gentiles, people who grew up outside the, what the Jewish people thought was the circle of God's love, 
as he's going through that long list of everything, the Jewish people are saying, yeah, 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 that's y'all. Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah, you. And then in chapter 2, Paul turns the table and helps the Jews realize it's not that simple. So listen with me to God's word in the first 11 verses of chapter 2. You have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man or woman, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Amen. May the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing and preservation of these words inspire them for our understanding as well. Well, that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow, I think. You know, we, we like to think that we have accepted Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and everything is, is uh, cotton candy in life after that. Everything is just going to go smoothly. And then we read the end of chapter 1 and realize that we're, you and I, not only they then, but you and I today are living in a world in which life is trouble. It's difficult. It's, we're all surrounded by difficult situations. And we kind of look down our nose at folks if we're honest with ourselves. And then you read chapter 2 and, and Paul says, you know, you're doing the same thing that you're criticizing others for doing. So who do you think you are? John Stott, the, the great British theologian and pastor, says this about uh, this particular passage. He says, this is not a call to suspend our critical faculties or renounce criticism and rebuke of others, but it's a prohibition on judging or condemning others when we fail to criticize ourselves. In other words, we've got to turn it around. You know, the word judge in the New Testament, and, and I really wrestled with this this week because I have some friends, I have some good friends who serve as judges in our court systems. Their job is to judge not people as much as the context in which people live. Now, in the biblical sense, to judge someone is really restricted 
to God. He is the only one who has the power to judge because the word literally means to sunder, to split in half, to decide. And in the biblical context, it's less about criticizing someone or their behavior and judging someone falls to their eternal destiny. So Paul is criticizing the Roman Jews for judging the Gentiles who are following Jesus and determining based on their behavior that they are not going to inherit the glory of God at the end of their life. If you think about it, many of us go through life with this little magnifying glass and we're looking at other people. We take this biblical context and we just kind of zoom in on people and say, oh, 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 I see you. Oh, I see what you're doing here, you know. Oh, look at you. You're a sinner. What we need to do is let's walk around with a magnifying glass in our hand. Rather, we need to take a look in the mirror and let Scripture function as a mirror. Now, look at this, look at this particular image. You see a guy who's, who's kind of, uh, you know, rough and, and a little scruffy looking. And the way he sees himself in the mirror is buttoned up and polished. And that's the way we look at ourselves, folks. When in reality, that image needed to be turned around so that we could recognize that the buttoned up and polished way we see ourselves is really not the way we really are. Whereas if we look at Scripture, we recognize that that buttoned up and polished look is really more rough and scruffy. We criticize, we judge other people for the very same things that we do. Simple, simple, silly illustration. This happened in my house uh, a number of years ago when our older daughter, Anne, was, I think, in middle school. And um, she was sitting in our family room, which this is when we lived in Mississippi. It was um, an enclosed garage, and the television was in there and, you know, the computer and all that kind of stuff. And I was trying to drive home to my middle school-aged daughter that you need to pay attention. You need to focus. You need not to, you know, just kind of be scatterbrained and trying to do everything because then you do things half-heartedly. While I'm doing this, I am in the laundry room, which is the next room from the family room, and I am ironing a shirt. Iron Man. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get another wear out of it before I have to take it to the cleaners and get it started. And I'm, I'm ironing the shirt, and I'm talking to Ann, and I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, she's not paying a bit of attention to me. And so I stop, and I walk into the room and proceed to chew her up one side and down the other for not paying attention. When I am convinced that I have made my point, I walk back into the laundry room and realize that the iron is still sitting on my shirt. And I pick it up. I, let's just say I never wore that shirt again because I have scorched the living daylights out of the sleeve of that shirt. Big old iron print on that shirt. I'm fussing at her about not paying attention to what she's doing. I was the one who was not paying attention to what I was doing. 
We criticize others for the very things that we do ourselves. Now that's, that's simple until they understand. But realize that it's not only here in Romans 2, but there are other places in Scripture where the prohibition on judging others, looking at their behavior and using that as a way of making a determination about their eternal destiny pops up as well. Think about the Gospel of Luke. Jesus tells in uh, Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember the Pharisee stands over and says his prayers and says, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this person. Remember that one? Whereas this guy is over here saying, you know, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees saying, don't judge other people. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He talked about the, the person who is trying to get a speck out of someone else's eye while he's got a log stuck in his own eye. Just, just take the contractor's view of that. And here's some guy who's trying to help somebody get a piece of sawdust out of his eye while the saw is just kicked up a two by four and it's impaled on this poor guy's head. And he's trying to help the guy with a speck of sawdust. Jesus is saying... Don't worry about the little things in other people's lives when there are big things in your own lives. One of the commentators that I read while working on uh, studying on Romans 2 pointed out the importance of looking at Proverbs 26, uh, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Let me tell you how smart I am. How many times have we done this, folks? I mean, the, the story plays itself out in the book of Esther where the number two man in the Persian kingdom is a guy named Haman, and Haman thinks that he is the bee's knees, that he is the neatest thing in this world since sliced bread, which hadn't even been invented yet. And he goes to the king, and the king says, what should be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor? And Haman thinks... He's talking about me. And he discovers, go back and read the story later, he discovers that the one person Haman hates the most in life is the one person that the king wants to honor. So everything that Haman says I should be getting is what the one person he doesn't want getting anything gets. Friends, beware of placing yourself on a pedestal. Be careful of the sense of entitlement that all of us carry in this day and age. It will do nothing but get in the way of our ability to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So I sat back in my study this week and thought, okay, so in today's day and age, in today's culture, what are the things over which we judge other people. This is not an exhaustive list, but just think about it for a minute. You look at somebody and you think about what their hair looks like. The style, the color, the shape, the design, whatever. Think about how they dress. Excuse me, let me button my jacket. We've had people criticize us as pastors for not buttoning our jackets on Sunday mornings. Not that they were judging us. I'm just trying, you know, just, you know. College? No. We don't judge each other on that, do we? 
the Iron Bowl, Auburn, Alabama. What do they call the Georgia-Georgia Tech game? What do they call the Georgia-Georgia Tech game? Good old-fashioned hate. Oh. You know, Florida, Florida State, Clemson, South Carolina, those interstate or intrastate rivalries, people look down their nose at one another. The list goes on and on and on. Sexual orientation, Paul talked about this in chapter one. Rich dealt with it incredibly well last Sunday night. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. If not, I'm sorry. You could have, should have been here. Um, but we look at people and we make judgments about them. You go out to the Silver Comet and ride a bike and you look at people who are walking or jogging or riding or you go around Chastain Park, you see the same thing, you think that person needs to do two more laps. We make judgments on people. Traffic. Park. Yesterday, we're going to the club. Now, I don't know what you think, but that's what we call Costco. And, and we're on Peachtree Road. We've gone out to, Lib and I have gone out to breakfast and we've decided we're gonna to go to the club and pick up a couple of things. And I don't know if any of you saw what was happening on Peachtree Road yesterday, but the northbound lanes of Peachtree Road from about Peachtree Road Lutheran Church going north was shuttled down to one lane. And when you got to Brookhaven, right there at, Dres at, at North Druid Hills, where the traffic light was, you might be able to get one car through because everybody coming off North Druid Hills and turning. And I was sitting, I'm a rule follower, and I'm sitting in the lane that is designated for traffic, and there are two empty lanes over here that are coned off, and I'm watching people drive by and get over. And I'm watching people come through the turn lane and get over. <laughs> I was chewing my tongue off because we've all done that. We, you haven't bypassed traffic illegally, I know, but we've chewed our tongue off watching others do it. We're parking. Somebody pulls in and takes up two parking places. They don't want you to ding their car they're, they're with your door, and you kind of look at that. And you know what's going to happen in just a little bit? Later this morning, you're going to be in this parking deck. And you didn't back in. And so you're trying to back out of your parking space. And traffic's coming out and going down. And no one will let you out. Bless their heart. <laughs> or you're coming into park and you're trying to get to a parking space and somebody's pulling forward and trying to back into a parking space. They can't get between those lines. And you think, would you just park the car? What's <laughs> work, eth work ethic? You're the person who gets to work early, works through lunch, keeps a nose to the grindstone, stays late, you're responding to emails at 10.30 at night, 
And you're looking at other people who come in on time, do their job, take their lunch break, do their job, and go home, and you think, what's the matter with them? I mean, they're doing their job. But because there's something in you that says you've got to overdo your job, you think there's something wrong with them. Now, here's the thing, folks, that, that whole list of things, and, and you could add to it, as I could as well. It's not just that they are our pet peeves. It's that we look at these people and we assassinate their character. We make assumptions about their spiritual life based on these kinds of, and she calls herself a Christian. Oh, he claims to be a follower of Jesus, and he drives like that. We make judgments about people's souls. Now, it's not that we're supposed to just quit recognizing inappropriate behavior. Remember, again, what, what John Stott, let me put that quote up uh, again. Remember what John Stott said. This is not a call to suspend our critical faculties nor renounce all criticism and rebuke of others. I mean, if somebody's, uh, what's, what's, if you see something, say something. Uh, but it's a prohibition on judging or condemning others when we fail to criticize ourselves. You know, we tend to, as, as Paul said in verse 4, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, I think we've got to use these words as a true mirror and look at ourselves and let God shape us. The coach of the football team, of which I was a part, remember I didn't play, I was the equipment manager, uh, in, in college used to tell the guys all the time, check your own stance. And what it meant by that in football parlance, now that we're right on the edge of football season, was if, if you're an offensive lineman and the center is over the ball, instead of fussing at the tackle about where he is, the guard needs to pay attention to himself, make sure he's in the right place before he starts talking to the tackle. And I think we've got to do the same thing. I think if we want to be a faithful follower of Jesus, if we want to be better today than we were tomorrow, if we want to be closer to the Lord today than we were yesterday, we're going to look in the mirror. We're going to look at the mess in the mirror and realize there are things in our lives that, that we need Jesus to help us clean up so that we can then, A, be better, and B, help other people be better as well. In the crypts of Westminster Abbey, uh, on one of the tombs there of an Anglican bishop was found engraved these words. When I was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world would not change, so I shortened my sight somewhat and decided to change only my country but it too seemed immovable. As I grew into my twilight years, in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me, but alas, they would have none of it. 
And now as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realize, if only I had changed myself first. And by example, I would have changed my family. From their inspiration and encouragement, I would then have been able to better my country. And, and who knows, I might have even changed the world. It begins with me standing before Jesus, with you standing before Jesus, and being honest and authentic. One of the prayers that I often pray, and guys who've been a part of Iron Man have heard this before, it's a dangerous prayer. Lord, let me see my life in the last 24 hours through your eyes. You want to be humbled? Pray that prayer. If you want to discover what your sins are, pray that prayer. If you want to back away from the tendency to be judgmental towards other people, pray that prayer. Lord, let me see my life through your eyes over the last 24 hours. Let's pray together. Father, we know that no one of us is perfect that there are more mistakes and glaring errors and, quite frankly, sins in our lives than we care to admit that we want to confess that we even know. How easy it is for us to see the wrongs of others and how hard it is for us to see our own wrongs. Shape us, Lord, and, and help us to be changed by you, to be restored by you, so that we can join you in the restoration of all things. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.